I recently came across an article and read a true story of a customer service experience that happened in a U.S. drugstore. Uh, it went something like this. There was a young woman who approached the customer service counter and was greeted by a representative who said, Hi, how are you? How may I help you? The lady responded, Yes, you can help me because I'd like to return this pregnancy test. The representative asked, Well, okay, what's wrong with it? The lady responded, the test came out positive. The representative was confused and said, okay, what would you like me to do? Uh, The woman said, "Uh, well, I can't be pregnant, so this test must be defective, and I want to return it. Now, for those of you who know, it's very rare for pregnancy tests to mistake a positive pregnancy. A negative one, yes, but a positive one, very rare. And so the representative said to the woman, ma'am, I'm so sorry, but you can't return a pregnancy test you've already used. The lady was adamant. What do you mean I can't return it? It's wrong. Uh, It gave a a false result. I want to see your manager. And so the representative goes back and calls upon the manager, who is also a woman, and explains the situation of the woman uh, out in the counter, and she returns with the rep back to the front. The manager says, Hello, how may I help you? The lady says, yes, you can help me. I want to return this pregnancy test. It came out positive, and I just can't be pregnant. I can't believe it. It's wrong, and I want my money back. The manager says, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I can't refund you on this test because it came out positive. Just because you don't like the result, I can't refund you. But the lady insisted, no, I insist on getting my money back. At which the manager, getting frustrated, replied, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I still can't give you a refund just because you don't like the test results. But by the way, congratulations on your new baby. As I read the absurdity of her denial, my response was how ridiculous that this woman would deny the obvious fact that she was going to be a mom. But as ridiculous as this exchange was, as I examine the Christian life, we do it all the time. We are Christians, whether we deny it or not. Whether we deny it through words or actions, we really are the children of God. We are followers of this man called Jesus Christ. But it is a natural response when we don't want to admit something that we simply deny, deny, deny. We see it with politicians. We see it with the accused. We see it with the defendants in the court. We see it with our children. We see it in our generation, young and old, a generation that when they simply don't want to admit something, they deny, they deny, they deny. And somehow in the denial of what they say, somehow it must be true. And because this has pervaded itself into our culture today, that somehow if we deny, then it simply won't come true. We do it with our faith as well. Now what's wrong with that, you say? Everyone is doing it. There are aspects of our Christian life that we are not perfect in. Well, here's what's wrong with it when we deny certain aspects of our faith. And we deny before the world that we are followers of Jesus in the way we live, in the way we talk, and in our actions. What's wrong is that the world sees the incongruity in which we live our lives and say what we believe in. They see the inconsistency of us claiming to be Christians in how we live our lives. So I think it's important for us to know of some factors that contribute to our natural denial of our Lord and of our faith. 
And we do so as we continue our sermon series entitled Imperfect. You see, the world needs to know that how we live our lives are consistent with how and what we claim to believe in. Turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We've been in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, as we take a look at verses 54 to 65. Luke, chapter 22, verses 54 to 65. And then put your finger there. I'd like you also to turn with me to John, chapter 18, as we take a look at verses 15 to 27. And so we're going to be flipping between two of these Gospel books. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 54, and then John chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. And we're going to study these two correlating passages. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we pick up the story where Jesus has been arrested in Gethsemane. The traitor Judas has kissed Jesus to signal the man the soldiers were to arrest. And if you missed that sermon, it's important that you go back and listen to it. Because not only is Judas the traitor... In the story, we're all traitors against Jesus. But Jesus has been arrested in Gethsemane, and he is brought to the house of the high priest. I pick up in Luke 22, verse 54. And having arrested him, they led Jesus and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled the fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. The Bible tells us that after Jesus was arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane, he was led to the house of the high priest for an illegal trial. We're told that Peter follows him from a distance. Now, we may have the impression, as I'm sure you've read this passage many a times, that you may have the impression that the courtyard of the high priest was an open area. It was open for everyone who wanted to come and enter. But if you turn to John chapter 18 and the corresponding account by John, you'll find out that they don't simply let anyone in. Look with me in John chapter 18, verse 15. And as you read different accounts in the Gospels of the same incident, remember that two accounts which may differ do not necessarily contradict each other, but they simply indicate different perspectives of the same incident. John 15, verse 18 And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now the disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her, who kept the door and brought Peter in. The reason that Peter was able to enter into the courtyard of the high priest was because there was another disciple following Jesus that night, and it was most likely John. And because of John's connection with members of the high priest's staff, they allowed him to enter into the courtyard of the high priest, but they wouldn't let anyone else in. And so Peter, the Bible tells us in verse 16 of John 18, had to stand outside. But John, realizing this, whispers to the one who is guarding the door, who is in charge of the opening and closing the door to the courtyard, would you let Peter in? And we're not sure exactly what John says. Perhaps he would have told this person, Peter's with me. He's a follower of Jesus. He would like to enter the courtyard. Whatever the case, Peter is let in. Now go back to Luke chapter 22, verse 56. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, 
This man was also with him, with Jesus. But Peter denied Jesus, saying, Woman, I do not know him. The Bible tells us that a certain servant girl sees that Peter is warming himself by the fire and accuses him of being with Jesus. Now, most of us think that this is some random servant girl who perhaps had seen Peter somewhere in the past and recognizes him as a follower of Jesus. But this wasn't a random chance. Because if you look at John chapter 18, verse 17 and 18, in John chapter 18, verse 17, we're told, Then the servant girl, note this, who kept the door, said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers who had made a fresh fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. This servant girl who accuses Peter of being a disciple of Jesus is no other than the servant girl who was manning the door who let Peter in. No wonder she would recognize Peter because John earlier had whispered to her, please let Peter in. He could have said, he's one of us. He's with me. He's a follower of Jesus. It wasn't like there was a wanted sign posted all throughout Jerusalem. Watch out for these 12. There was no wanted sign. But this servant girl knew that Peter was a follower of Jesus because John most likely had told her that Peter was a follower of Jesus. And as Peter had gathered around the fire in a cold evening to warm himself, and along with him, soldiers and officials and servants, and this girl also wanting to warm herself in the fire, caught a glimpse of Peter and recognized him. And so it's very natural for this girl to make this connection. Peter, thinking that his cover is now blown, or more likely he was scared of the people who were gathered there and what they would think if he said that he was a follower of Jesus. The Bible tells us he denied Jesus. I believe Peter feared the response of what would happen if they knew that he was a follower of Jesus. You see, I want you to see something in this incident. I want you to see, number one, that we often deny Jesus because of fear. If you're taking notes, that's number one. We deny Jesus because of fear. You see it if you have children. When you catch your children doing something wrong, the first thing they often say when you confront them is what? I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Even if you saw them do it, and they know you saw them do it, they instinctively and immediately deny. Why? Because of fear. They fear getting in trouble. They are afraid of the consequences. Peter's denial was an outright lie, and yet he responded, I do not know this man, because he was afraid. But more than focusing on Peter, I want you to think about the impression that must have seared into the mind of this servant girl. What would the servant girl think about followers of Jesus Christ when she blatantly heard an outright lie, when she had been told by John 
to let this man in because he was a follower of Jesus, she must think that followers of Jesus have no backbone. She must think that followers of Jesus are always running scared. She must think that followers of Jesus would immediately deny him when they are simply asking, are you with this man? Does that sound like the world as it relates to you? But somehow Peter doesn't care about presenting any sort of good testimony or mark of honesty. He says, adamantly, I do not know him, as Luke would recount. And in the same breath, he says, I am not one of his disciples, as John would recount. To the very girl who opened the door and let him in, because John told this woman that Peter was one of his buddies and associated with Jesus. My friends, the world knows if we deny our faith. They will know we deny our faith because of fear. And they won't think much of us when they realize that. Because they will know that your actions and your words don't really mean much if you would deny your faith so easily just because you fear. So what type of faith you exhibit to the world when they can so easily see that you blatantly deny your faith in the face of fear. I remember in one of the Charlie Brown comic strips that Linus and Charlie Brown were talking together. And Linus says to Charlie Brown, I don't like to face problems head on. I think the best way to solve problems is to avoid them. In fact, this is a, this is a distinct philosophy of mine. No problem is so big or complicated that it can't be run away from. That was Linus's philosophy. Sadly, that is the philosophy of many Christians. That often marks the Christian life. There is no problem so complicated and so big that I cannot run away from. We fear. We fear the consequences of making a decision for Jesus. We fear. That fear was in the mind of Peter. Now, you can argue that there was a real fear of him getting arrested. But let me ask you this. After Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane, were any of his other disciples arrested? Not a single one. If they wanted to round up all the followers of Jesus, they would have done it in Gethsemane. Not a single one of them were arrested. Sometimes we project fear into a situation. But in reality, there's nothing we have to fear that warrants our denial of Jesus and our faith. Sometimes we're so afraid to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, but we would be so surprised to find out that if we were to do so, nothing would happen to us. But we project worst-case scenarios. We project fear of what would happen if we tell someone we are a Christian or we are a follower of Jesus. And that is what Satan uses to get many Christians to deny their faith. He causes fear in their hearts. What is the second factor that causes us to deny Jesus? Look at verse 58 of Luke 22. And after a little while, 
while another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. We find out from Luke that there was a period of time that passed, and then another man accused Peter and said, I saw you with Jesus. Peter said, No, I was not. Now jump to John chapter 18, verse 25. It's interesting. And if you are a student of the Scriptures and you read carefully and you look at the details, you'll see something very interesting. In John chapter 18, verse 25, it says this, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they, note the plural, said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. What you have happened here is this. You have a man who accuses Peter that he was one of Jesus' disciples. And then, slowly but surely, all those who gathered around the fire, one by one, began to chime in. And now you have a group of people, from a singular man to a group of people, accusing Peter of being one of Jesus' followers. And in the second round of accusation, Peter adamantly says, I am not a follower of of Christ. Now, I've always thought it kind of strange. And I've, I, this is the question I'm going to ask Peter when I get to heaven. Peter, when that servant girl first accused you and you denied her, why didn't you just leave? Did you ever ask yourself that question? Why did you stick around? You were identified. Why did you stick around? Why did you just leave? I don't know. If Peter was smart, he would have left that fire. And yet he stuck around, and for whatever reason, because he stuck around, a man recognizes him. And then more chime in, and now you've got a group who are pressing up against him. Perhaps Peter thought that no one else would recognize him. Perhaps he thought it wouldn't happen to him again. Perhaps he thought in his mind, yes, I denied Jesus, but she was the one at the door. No one else would recognize me. I won't commit the same sin again. And we often do the same thing. We think that it's a one-off if we deny Jesus. It's a one-time thing. God will understand. He will forgive me. It won't happen again until it happens. Peter could have, at this second time, admitted that he was one of Jesus' followers, especially with so many witnesses chiming in. But instead, Peter doubles down with increasing pressure and again denies Jesus a second time. He says, I am not one of them. And from this interplay, you see a second principle, number two. We often deny Jesus because of pressure. We deny Jesus because of pressure. When one person attacks us and that opposition grows, we often shriek back and skirt back And we succumb to the pressure. And that's why it's important for us all to be in community. To be in a community that supports us when the pressure of the world comes pressing onward. A community helps us withstand the onslaught of the pressure of this world. But here, Peter was all alone. We don't know where John is. He's gone somewhere. And who knows where the other nine are. When pressure is put upon us, We often have a human tendency to conform, to wilt under pressure. 
It is a natural process. I'm not sure if you've heard of the psychologist Solomon Ash. Uh, if you've taken philosophy, I'm sure you would have studied him or psychology. But Solomon Ash wanted to show the power of conformity. And so in the 1950s, he did a series of social experiments. In his experiments, his subjects were told that they were taking part in a vision test along with a handful of other people. The participants would be shown pictures and they would individually answer a very simple and obvious question. Now the catch was that everyone in the room was in on the experiment except the test subject. And the test subject would answer last. Uh, now these questions were obviously right or wrong. It was, it was not complex questions. It was a very simple question. Obvious questions like which line is the longest? Pretty simple stuff. It was obvious which one was the right answer. And yet when Solomon Ash ran these series of tests known as the Ash Experiments, he came to a very disturbing conclusion. Sadly, 32%, one-third of the test subjects would answer incorrectly if they saw that everyone else in the classroom had given the same wrong answer. Even though it was obvious what was the right answer, one-third of the test subjects gave the wrong answer because they were pressured into conformity because everyone in the room answered incorrectly as well. What does that say about us? It says a lot about us. Regardless of religion, it shows us that the human heart is very fickle. When pressure is applied, we seek to conform. One-third of you, if the survey is correct, one-third of you will make a wrong decision even though there is a right decision to be made if everyone makes the wrong decision with you. That percentage is quite high when the answers are so black and white. But what if the answers aren't so black and white and they're a bit subjective? The percentage shoots up. Now you say, well, pastor, this doesn't apply to me. I know what's right and wrong. I know the Bible. I've, I'm a Christian. Let me ask you this. How many of you, when you're with a group of friends and someone tells a joke, how many of you, even though you don't understand the joke, will laugh because everyone else is laughing? We do that. It would be very embarrassing if someone asked us, why are you laughing? We laugh because everyone's laughing. We conform because of the social pressure. How many of you, probably a lot of us, how many of you, when you're a group, uh, with a group of friends and you're the last one, how many of you, when you're posed the question, where would we like to eat tonight? And usually the first one who answers, often everyone agrees, right? How many of you, if 20 of your friends says, we want to go to this restaurant and you hate this restaurant, would you dare say, you know what? I don't want to go here. Most of us would simply say, yes, we like that place too. Let's go. Very few of us would say, no, I'm so sorry. I won't go. 
I hope you understand the power of pressure to get us to conform. And the world knows that. The evil one knows that. In school, we're taught to be brave. To, brave, to be brave enough to, to be true to yourself. That's great in theory. But in reality, it doesn't happen. Where is the Peter that we saw a few weeks ago? And in that context, where was the Peter of a few hours ago that was ready to fight anyone who stood up against Jesus, who in doing so inadvertently cut off the ear of the high priest's servant? Where is that Peter? Where is that Peter? Well, that Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane had with him ten other disciples, and Jesus was there. But now we have a Peter who's all by himself around the fire, all alone, and he wilted under pressure. And he says, I do not know this man. What sort of pressure are you under that allows you to deny Jesus in words and in action? And my friends, silence is denial as well. Because if the world sees this, all they have to do is manipulate you to get you to conform and deny Christ. They just simply add a little pressure. So unless you know yourself well, unless you are grounded in the Scriptures, your mind will be skewed as long as a larger group influences you. And that's why the college campus is a dangerous place. Because there, college students are introduced to men and women who are brilliant. And in their social circles, everyone is talking about how dumb idea believing in Christ is. And we often lose our young people there. We deny Jesus because of pressure and the pressure to conform. You need to be aware of that fact so that you can thwart the fiery darts of the evil one. John chapter 18, verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. And then go to Luke chapter 22, verse 59. Luke 22, verse 59. Then after about an hour had passed, Another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow was also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Of all the people that were in that group surrounding the fire, there was a relative of the one who got his ear cut off. One who was also at the garden. And if you are a relative of the one who got his ear lopped off, I'm sure you would know the man who lopped off your cousin's or your relative's ear. And this man says, I identify you, Peter. You were there at the garden. This wasn't some stranger making a false accusation. This was a man who saw that Peter cut off his relative's ear. He would remember his face. 
Then he also said Peter was for sure with Jesus because through his accent, he could tell that he was from the north. He was a Galilean, a region with their distinct way of talking. And here it is, the third accusation. And yet again, Peter denies Jesus a third time. He tells the third accuser, I do not acknowledge the facts of what you are saying. And then the rooster crowed. This man was confident, the Bible says in verse 59, confidently affirming. He was making a positive identification. If there was a lineup, this man positively ID'd Peter as a follower of Jesus Christ who can be placed in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. But Peter simply denies this because he doesn't want to be identified with Jesus. Peter denies, although a blatant lie, his very association with Jesus. And from this incident, we receive our third principle. You see number three. We often deny Jesus because of identification. We often deny Jesus because however you want to couch it, we do not want to be identified with Jesus Christ. You see, at the end of the day, forget fear, forget pressure. What forces us to deny Jesus is when push comes to shove, we've got to ask ourselves the question, do we want to be identified with him or not? And with that identification come with it all of the implication. Why don't we want to be identified with Jesus Christ? You know, here on a Sunday at church, it's easy to identify with Christ. In fact, it's probably to our benefit to say you're a Christian. Hey, I don't know you. Are you a believer? Yes, I am. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you are believers? All of you would raise your hand. Even the unbelievers would raise their hand because they don't want to be singled out as the one who doesn't believe in Jesus. But when we get to the weekdays or in the work day or in the school days of our lives, somehow we don't want to be identified with Jesus. Outside of the church, it's not cool to be identified with Jesus. It's not socially accepted. And so through our silence, through our words and through our actions, we deny him before others. For many of us, that simple identification of being a follower of Jesus is very difficult. Because when we identify ourselves with Christ, there are many implications that come along with it. And so to avoid these implications, we simply deny in our silence, in words, in our action, that we know this man, Jesus. And we try to live out his principles. You see, in the gospel writings, we never read about what the implications would be if Peter had identified himself as a follower of Christ. But you see, for the gospel writers, it doesn't matter. It should not matter what the implications and the fallouts are to identify with Jesus. It shouldn't matter. What matters is that we simply do it. We simply do it without worrying about the implications. Yes, I know there are practical implications. And I know that you know there are practical implications. You see, if you are part of a non-Christian family, if you have non-Christian family members, and you identify with being a follower of Jesus Christ and living out his principles, then guess what? You have to obey your parents. And if you identify with Jesus Christ, then you have to obey your parents because that's what he told us to do. 
If you are in a non-Christian family or even a Christian one and you identify with one who follows Jesus, then you have to be faithful to your husband and to your wife. You have to love upon them like Christ loved the church. And that's difficult. And so even in our families, although we can be great witnesses, we diminish our identification with Him because we don't like the implications. If you're a student, whether in high school or college, you know what the implications are? If you identify yourselves as a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, then guess what? You can't cheat. But because we like to cheat so much, because that's the only way we can pass, we diminish our identification with Jesus. We play this game all the time. We don't like the implications And so we simply deny Jesus. If you're a businessman, if you are working in a corporation, we often don't want to make a big issue of the fact that we're followers of Christ. Why? Because now we have to pay our taxes properly. And now we have to do things ethically and we have to do things right. You see, we don't like that. And so we deny Jesus just like Peter did. If you want to be a company who is Christ-honoring and you want to proclaim to the world that this is a company where Christ is the center and He is to be glorified and honored, then there's great implications in that. And you know what they are, especially in this cultural context. But we don't like those implications. And so we deny Christ in our silence, in our words, in our actions. One of the nurses who attended to my mother was from Africa. But what marked her life as she was on the 7 to 7 shift uh, was that there was such joy in her life. There was joy in her countenance. And so I asked her, why do you have such joy doing such a hard job as a nurse? And her response surprised me. She didn't say anything about enjoying her job because she could help people. She didn't say anything about enjoying her job because it gave her significance. She said, without pausing, I do my job with joy so that I can reflect Jesus Christ in my life. And that was before she knew that we were a room full of believers. I do my job with joy so that I can reflect Jesus Christ in my life. That's a very dangerous statement. Why? Because she has put it out on the table that how she works is a reflection of Jesus Christ. And if she ever messed up or she had a bad attitude, then those in the room would question who Jesus is based on her. You know, she could have said, I enjoy my job because it gives me fulfillment. I enjoy this job because I get to help people. And if she had a bad day, everyone would say, it's okay, everyone gets a bad day. But if you were to say, I do this job for the glory of God because I serve Him, and if you have a bad day, guess what? They will have second thoughts about who this Jesus is. And that's why the implications of identifying with Jesus is something that is profound. Something that's very difficult, but something we're all called to do. 
Because when we say we live our lives as a student, as a child, as a parent, as a teenager, as a person in the workforce, as a retiree, as a senior citizen, if we say we are a follower of Jesus Christ, then the world expects us to live like one who follows his principles. And how the implications of what that entails, you know what they are. Imagine all the servers, and I'm going to hit some people here right now, all the servers who watch you pray before you eat, and when that bill comes and they know you're not a senior citizen and you've got a senior citizen card and use it, what are they thinking? They're thinking, boy, these people are such hypocrites, and that has left a mark in their mind. If you pray before you eat on the college campus, if you are a member of a Bible study, if you say you're in morning devotions, and they see that you cheat like everyone else on Chinese tests, then it's not a laughing matter. That is a reflection of your faith. And they're making a mental assessment of who Jesus Christ is in your life. That's the truth. If you have checked in any box that you are a Protestant, evangelical Christian, whatever way you identify yourself, and you tell people, I go to church, and they see that your life is inconsistent, in how you treat your wife or your spouse or your children or how you deal with them in business, in your attitude, in your language. It is a reflection of Jesus. Better not to say anything. It's hard. No one said it was easy. But the truth of the matter is we deny Jesus because of identification. And for many of us, sadly, we cannot utter the words, I am a follower of Jesus, because of the way we live our life. In the comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes, and you may have the notion that I read a lot of comics, I do, actually. Great theology in comics. In Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin says this to Hobbes, It's not denial. I'm just very selective about the reality I accept. Isn't that great? It's not denial. I'm just very selective about the reality I accept. What's your reality? Christian on Sunday, non-believer Monday through Saturday. You cannot pick and choose the reality in which you live. You either are or are not a follower of Jesus Christ. Any half-baked follower of Jesus Christ is not a follower of Jesus Christ. You can be saved, but you're not a true disciple. So who are you? Are you a follower or are you not? Luke chapter 22, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. We're not sure how Peter makes eye contact with Jesus. Most likely, Jesus was being led out of the high priest's house and to go before the Sanhedrin, which we'll talk about next week. But as he was being transported, their eyes met. And Peter caught the glimpse of Jesus looking at him. And it triggered in his mind what Jesus had said about denial and what he would do before the rooster crowed. And the Bible tells us he ran out of the courtyard and he wept bitterly. 
He was shamed. What would Peter have seen? Peter would have seen the bruised and bleeding face of Jesus. He would have seen clothes, perhaps, that were torn. And Peter, who's outside just warming himself, thinking, it's no big deal, I just simply denied Jesus, I'll ask God for forgiveness later. When he saw, perhaps, a bit of disappointment in the eyes of Jesus, and what Jesus went through, the Bible tells us, he went out and he wept bitterly. In our lives, in the moment in which we deny Jesus, in our silence, in our words, in our action, what if at that moment we met the glance of the eyes of Jesus, the eyes of the one who died for us? How would that make us feel? I hope it will make you feel shameful, as it should, because the ramification of denying Jesus is shame especially when we understand that Jesus never denies us before the Heavenly Father, the Bible tells us. And yet we continue to deny Him before the world in word and action. Do we feel shame when we deny Jesus? Do we feel bad? Does it even affect us? That how we live does not reflect what we say we believe in. Does it bother us? Because it should. And somehow it didn't bother Peter until he saw Jesus. Maybe some of us need to see Jesus a little bit more clearly. Verse 63 to 65. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on his face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. Why does Luke put these three verses here? And John would also incorporate that in the midst of Peter's denial. I think it was to contrast what Peter was doing and what Jesus was enduring. Jesus was going to die for the sins of mankind. Jesus was going through with it. He would not allow the fear of death to prevent him from walking the way of the cross. He would not allow the pressure of two high priests, a governor, Pontius Pilate, six illegal trials to deny the fact that he was the Son of God. And he stated it very clearly, I am the Son of God. I've come to save the lost. He identified who he was and he suffered the consequences of being hit in the face, of taking on false accusations because he knew who he was. He was grounded in the mission of which he knew he had to do, which was to save mankind because he loved us. Jesus could have denied us at any time. He could have said, you ungrateful, no good people. Why in the world am I dying for people like Peter who can't even affirm me before these people? But his love for us and for Peter and for Judas and for everyone else drew him nearer to the cross. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he never leaves us nor forsakes us. So how can we even think about denying him when there is one who we call Lord who never leaves us nor forsakes us? That's something you've got to think about. And that's something you've got to come to terms with. If I am a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what is expected of me. Can you say 
to the people in your spheres of influences. When one action is truly right and one action is truly wrong, I am so sorry. I cannot do this because I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. If you can do that, I will applaud you. But more importantly, God will applaud you. I hope we will raise up a generation, young and old, a generation who is not affected by fear, who is not affected by pressure, who wants to be identified with Jesus and all the implications that come with it. And that they would see every day the eyes of Jesus looking upon their lives and they would see Jesus face to face in their quiet, daily, intimate moments to be aligned to know that they can say with all certainty and with all passion and with all conviction, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. These are the things I can do. These are the things I cannot do. The choice is yours. But I hope the Word of God has challenged you to think how we all need to live our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Your Word has challenged me this entire week. Looking about the many times I have even as a pastor, denied you because pastors do get scared and they want to conform. They want to be liked. For those this morning who, whose lives have been a life of denial, would you forgive us for the shed blood of Jesus Christ? Would you help us to daily gaze upon the face of the one who died for us, to look upon the loving Savior who never denies us before the Heavenly Father, who never leaves us nor forsake us, and with the cross squarely set in our perspective, we will tell all those who want to listen by the way we live, by the words that come out of our mouth, that we are followers of Jesus. Because, Lord, we love you. Because of what you've done, you deserve our very best. I pray you would raise up a generation, beginning here at this church, of men and women who will affirm who they are. They are followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.